Look at me, using a sermon slide. <laughs> a woo from the AV booth. As I think about what to preach on when I preach on from time to time, since I'm not in a regular series, uh, it's, it's challenging sometimes, and usually in the couple weeks leading up to it, there's probably three or four themes that I think about, and that was true in this case as well. But I finally decided on this theme because I was reading sort of for another lesson, another time in the Word that I was going to be teaching, and I was here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and so we'll start here this morning if you want to turn there with me. As Paul was describing his ministry and breaking in at verse 9, he says, So we make it our goal to please the Lord. And then in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. But what struck me, and I've read that verse many, many, many times, but was that phrase, since we know what it is to fear the Lord. Paul refers to knowing what it is to fear the Lord almost as a passing comment. It just shows how obvious and essential and foundational this attitude, this stance towards the Lord was to the Apostle Paul. We know what it is to fear the Lord. But what about us? What about you? What about me? As I read what Paul wrote, it struck me that knowing what it means in the first place, and then knowing what it actually is to experience the fear of the Lord, doesn't seem now at all so obvious at all in popular prevailing Christianity today. And I wonder if I just said, write down right now what it means to you to fear the Lord, I wonder if we'd have much to say, if we think very often really in those terms at all. It sounds quaint these days to speak of someone as a God-fearing person. That just sort of seems to, you know, be talking about almost certainly someone older and somewhat of an older uh, way of thinking about things. Do we even aspire as we think about living the Christian life? Do we even aspire to be? I want to be sure that I'm someone who fears the Lord. I was reading a great chapter on this in a great book on living the Christian life. And the writer was John Murray, seminary professor to Dr. Greer, who's mentored me and had such an impact here at South in the past. And this writer had a chapter on the fear of God in his book on ethics and his opening sentence was, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the very essence of true Christian spirituality. 
Sometimes I think that when we think about, well, we live in the dispensation, the New Testament dispensation of grace, that it mutes this idea of fearing the Lord. But it would be good for us to remember that there was no one in the New Testament who was a more ardent advocate for God's free grace than the Apostle Paul. And for him, as we've just seen, true godliness must include knowing what it means, knowing what it is to fear the Lord. We're going to start in the Old Testament and see what an important theme that is. And by the way, it is a major mistake to undervalue what the Old Testament says on these things. Sometimes we confuse the fact that yes, we do live in the New Covenant time and the old Law of Moses covenant is passe, is obsolete. And yes, there is a fuller revelation in Christ of the way of salvation. But the essentials of what it means to live a godly life are taught deeply in the Old Testament as well. And the New Testament is founded upon those teachings, upon those realities and themes. And so when we turn to think about, and I just want us to get a feel, first of all, for the prominence of the fear of the Lord in Scripture in both the Old and New Testament. Proverbs 9.10, this might be the most famous verse about it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. First of all, notice that the fear of the Lord and the knowledge, the true knowledge of the Holy One are parallel. They're saying the same thing. If you don't have the fear of the Lord, you don't have a real true knowledge of the Holy One. If your knowledge of the Holy One doesn't inspire you and move you to fear and revere him, you don't have the true knowledge of him yet. The fear of the Lord then is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs, is saying that your whole way of living, your whole way of understanding and looking at processing life, the fear of the Lord is the key to that. If you don't have a profound reverence and regard for God, you won't get anything else really right in living life. And remember 2 Timothy 3.15, the scripture gives us the wisdom that leads to salvation. But that would mean that the wisdom that leads to salvation begins, is rooted in the fear of the Lord. And Ephesians 5.15 and the book of James talk about wisdom and living the Christian life. Well, the fear of the Lord is the beginning. It's the foundation for that. And so that says to me, any version of the Christian life, any version of spirituality that doesn't have that solid source is bound to be disfigured from the very beginning, fundamentally flawed. It all begins, the Bible... The fear of God is the soul, it's the essence of real godliness. And so we find in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 10, Moses telling the people of Israel, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to fear me as long as they live and may teach them to their children. 
Just notice, by the way, that the Bible's very concerned that the fear of the Lord is taught to children. A deep, profound respect and reverence for God is communicated to children and families, new covenant families, that are committed to really passing the faith along. Regarding the king of Israel, it says, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, is he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all his days, the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this, these laws and these decrees. Here we find out that the way to develop a fear of the Lord is to be in the Word of God. In the Word of God and His laws, you learn about His holiness. But in the Word of God and His works, you watch His holiness in action. You see Him act in holiness towards the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel sin or when the people of Israel improvise what holiness can be on their own terms like bringing strange fire, God turns out to be a consuming fire. This is where you learn what it means to fear the Lord. What it is to fear him, to revere him. Read the Psalms. Think about the life of David and his encounters with God that you read about in this book, and you'll learn to fear the Lord, to take him seriously. Deuteronomy 6, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live. And again, he says how that manifests itself by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life, so that you may thrive. Remember when the Lord was talking to Satan about Job? Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. There's a vital connection between those two things as well. Psalm 2, verses 10 and 11, Therefore, you kings, the kings who have been conspiring against God and against his anointed, therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, Serve Yahweh with fear and celebrate his rule. Literally rejoice with trembling. There's a preview of something we've got to learn to put together. We're not very good. It's either joy or it's fearing the Lord in our minds. And the two are kind of opposed. They're opposites. But in the Bible, they're not opposites. In the Bible, it's a, always a reverent joy. It's not grim, but it is serious, a serious joy. Rejoice with trembling. Psalm 112, verse 1, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, which is to say, who greatly delights in his command. 
One book I would recommend to you if you want to pursue this theme, because in one sermon we can barely scratch the surface, is the book The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. And you'll see how the fear of God, reverence for God is this vital, vitalizing force and impact and influence upon us if we truly possess it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind or this is the whole duty of man. And then there is this insight as to what goes a long way in producing the fear of God. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The prospect of the divine judgment instills a deep reverence for the one who's going to be the judge. The one who's going to pronounce the final verdict concerning you and concerning me, concerning our eternal destiny. Remember the Lord Jesus teaching us that there are going to be many who are surprised on that day of final verdict? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, etc.? But not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, and then I will say to them, depart from me. When you realize that the Lord is the one who's going to get the final say about your everlasting destiny, it's hard to even think in those terms and to think them seriously. But that is ahead for every single one of us. Jesus' pronouncement about one way or another irreversibly forever. That's why Jesus says, don't be afraid even of those who can kill the body, but that's all they can do. But be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. If we just pondered these realities, they would give a sobriety, a seriousness to our lives. And so, Fear God, fear the one who's going to be the final judge. That's part of it. These are just a tiny fraction of Old Testament passages about how crucially important the fear of the Lord is for godly living. But as we continue to the even fuller revelation and deeper experience of the new covenant situation once the Messiah has come, it's a great mistake to think that the importance of fearing the Lord begins to recede or to subside. It was in the scripture reading that Doug read. The prophecy about the Messiah who was to come, what would he be like? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, but the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord will rest on him too. In fact, it says, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Is that a meaningful phrase to us? Delighting in fearing God. And I, I'm honest, I wanna be honest, one message even for myself, it's going to take a while for, I think, for this to really sink in. 
the idea of fearing God, profoundly revering God, and we're going to define it more as we go along, for that to really be a central aspiration and a central concern of mine as I think about engaging with God. It's a description of Jesus the Christ. And if we are Christians who are going to be Christ-like, we too will want to get to the place where we delight in the fear of the Lord. But just to confirm that point even more, listen to the prophecy from Jeremiah about the new covenant situation that the Lord will bring. And this was part of the scripture reading too. Jeremiah 32 verse 38 and following. They will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them, I will give them singleness of heart and of action so that they will always fear me. God, by the gift of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant situation, will give us singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me, revere me, so that it will go well with them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I'll never stop doing, to good, doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. That gives us hints as to why it means to fear him. When we stop fearing him, when we stop taking God and the things of God with a deep, deep seriousness, when we stop being overwhelmed by a sense of his majesty and his holiness, as well as the greatness of his mercy, then it's very easy to think that we're going to drift, that we're going to get disinterested, that we're going to wander away. When the things of God were new to us and fresh to us, there was such a power to them. It was just overwhelming when we thought about his majesty or we thought about his mercy. But if we lose that sense, and so the promise is, I will inspire them to fear me. That way, they'll never turn away from me. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me for all time. For their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, never to draw back from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. Remember one of the descriptions in Romans 3 of the unbeliever, one of the fundamental things about an unbeliever? There's no fear of God. Before, they don't think that, they don't take God seriously. It can be a joke even. They don't take him seriously. They don't take the prospect of being an everlasting soul that's going to face him one day of judgment. They think that's a joke. It's not a joke. It's a reality. But they don't take it seriously. There's no fear of, there's no reverence for God and the things of God. And we see that increasingly in the culture and all the mocking and the scoffing, including of sacred things. It's such, it's a judgment that people are in that situation and position. And so we go through the New Testament and in Mary's Magnificat, she magnified and glorified the Lord, including saying this, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Think too, even in the New Testament time when people encountered the Lord, 
Remember, we've just been through the Christmas season and the Christmas story, and I've shared before how I got to be Linus in the Wilmington Presbyterian Church Christmas play back when I was about six, and I memorized the whole Luke 2. The shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were, what? Sore afraid. <laughs> That's King James. I don't usually use sore as an ad. They, were, they weren't just afraid. They were sore afraid. They were terrified. We've got to realize when human beings, finite and fallen, encounter God as he really is in the glimpses of when that happens in the Bible, it happened to Isaiah. What did Isaiah the prophet? He was a prophet for pity's sake. But he actually encounters the Lord in the glory of the temple. And he says, woe is me. I'm ruined for I've seen the Lord and he has to hear from God the do not be afraid and there has to be the act of atonement that cleanses his lips, his lips that had prophesied but even those were so tainted by sin. And so the shepherds and you know, when we tell the Christmas story, we've got to do our best to tell it all. We've got to tell about shepherds that are terrified when they engage with God as he really is. Think about the disciples when Jesus calmed the sea. Remember they were out on the lake and the storm comes up and they are totally afraid that they're going to drown and they're like, Lord, don't you care that we perish? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? He calms the sea. And by the way that many would portray it today, you'd expect that they'd be like, oh, high five, you know, Jesus for, you know, being able to do that. But in that miraculous act, they realize they're in the presence of the divine. And what does it say? They were not relieved. They were terrified. James and John and Peter and Andrew. They were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. John encounters the resurrected and glorified Jesus. I've talked about this before. John, who was the disciple Jesus loved. John, who leaned against Jesus' chest when they would have dinner from time to time because that's what they did. They reclined at table, that intimate and familiar with Jesus for three years. But John encounters the resurrected, glorified Jesus and the descriptions given of him in Revelation chapter 1 and it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. This is new covenant people engaging with God. But there is fear, sometimes terror, in the presence of the Almighty. Turn with me now then to a very revealing and very important verse in Acts 9 that describes the daily experience of the Spirit-baptized New Covenant Church of the Messiah. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Here's Luke's summary. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Can it really be truly said of our congregation of the other Bible-believing churches in town? One of the great ways of describing is they live day by day in the fear of the Lord. Just as the prophets had foretold, the new covenant people of the Messiah, the church, are led by the Spirit to live in the fear of the Lord. And that's just what we find throughout the New Testament. It's what we find when it comes to living the Christian life. And so in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, therefore, since we have the promises, dear friend, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The fear of God is going to be the atmosphere, the attitude, the guiding, controlling context that it's going to keep pushing us toward perfecting holiness, going further and deeper in holiness. If you don't have the fear of God, you're not going to have much concern about pursuing holiness. That aspiration, that goal, that pursuit, that's going to fall away. But not if you still possess the fear of God. Philippians 2, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Are there ever times when you read the New Testament where you think the language is just so, it's like, I don't even know, trembling? What are you talking about? Taking the pursuit of working out our salvation and obedience with fear and trembling, that almost sounds like you need to see someone. But that's the earnestness with which we're to pursue holiness. Peter writes in a similar way, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, see the link to his judging work that, that's ahead for you? Since you call on a father, and you call him father, you invoke a father who judges each person's work impartially. Live out your lives as foreigners here in reverent fear. Now one of the things that I want to challenge you, and I'm going to challenge me with, if this feels, sounds, seems foreign to you, then realize it's what the God, word of God is calling for. I've got to get to the place where it makes sense to me to talk in these terms. And for Christianity to be described in this way. In chapter 2, verse 17, Peter says, fear God. 
It's interesting to see how the Apostle Paul thought of the fear of the Lord as relevant and important, even in the most mundane matters of life. As he wrote to the slaves in the church of Colossae, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly. And then he says, fearing the Lord. You'll do a good job at your job, even if it's menial, even when the boss isn't watching. Because you take God and God's will for you, which is to be a good worker, seriously. So you'll be a good worker because you fear the Lord. The writer to the Hebrews believed that fear had its crucial role in keeping the Christians in that church from defecting from the faith. He says in Hebrews 4, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We've already seen that the fear of the Lord is crucial when it comes to motivating and guiding authentic Christian witness and ministry. And as for the church's worship, and again, this theme could be easily a series. But listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Since therefore we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. There are ways of worshiping that aren't acceptable and aren't pleasing to him. This is how you worship God acceptably, pleasing to him with reverence and awe. And the background, because remember, our God, new covenant, same God, Lord Jesus, same yesterday, our God is still a consuming fire. Reverence and awe. When was the last time you experienced awe, awe in your worship. Do we even aspire to it? Do we aim for it? I know we aim for joy, and joy is entirely appropriate. But will we ever get to the place where we can rejoice with trembling? Where we can be filled with joy, but it's a trembling joy. Psalm 130, therefore, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Feared? Why would you fear the one who's the source of forgiveness? You hold him in awe because he's made forgiveness possible. You were a guilty sinner headed to everlasting judgment and you could do nothing about it. But then someone comes along and he can give you forgiveness. That fills you with a sense of awe towards him. A reverence, a respect. Worship that is pleasing and acceptable to God is worship that is characterized by reverence and a profound sense of wonder. And awe. And maybe the most convincing of all to make the point that the fear of the Lord is a permanent, enduring feature of the holiness of God's people is to listen from the book of Revelation to one of the songs of the redeemed in heaven singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. 
Great and marvelous are your deeds. I'm going to run out of time. The catalyst for the fear of God and awe towards God is encounter with God and we encounter God through his word. That's where you hear the true story about him. Not the stories that others have imagined. We've got the story we so desperately need of the words and works and ways of God in the Bible. And it's by encountering that that you come to truly revere him and fear him. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord? And bring glory to your name. That's the song they sing in heaven. What is it to fear the Lord? The fear of God in which godliness consists, says Murray, is the fear which powerfully produces adoration and love. It's the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship. And all of these on the highest level of exercise... It is the reflexive response in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. Bridges says, to fear God is to cherish an awesome sense of his greatness, grandeur, and excellence as these perfections are revealed to us in his word and in his works. His works in creation can inspire reverence for God. His works and providence to see him show up and to rescue and to deliver, to heal and to help. His works of redemption most of all. When I gaze upon the cross. And this reverential awe when it is present leads the believer to fear him. To be deeply serious and earnest about all the things of God and God's will. Let me say it another way. The fear of God moves us to stop messing around when it comes to being a Christian. Stop just playing around. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance the only thing it cannot be is moderately important I think I fear that so many professing Christians try to live with a Christianity that's moderately important the fear of the Lord no one who really fears God thinks in those terms the person who fears God knows that nothing matters more than sincerely and truly engaging with God. Where do we go from here? What is the catalyst for reverence for the Lord? It is engaging with God's word. Pray for preaching, for teaching, for worship, for our worship includes psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which should be a way for the word of Christ to live among us richly. And as we contemplate the glory of the Lord through scripture-soaked sermons, readings, stories, and songs, that's the catalyst for seeing him as he is and being led, being transformed to worship him. 
I can't think of anything that would be more beneficial for any church when it comes to purging and removing and purifying what is dross in our lives and also enhancing and strengthening and enriching what is good in our lives and in the life of our church than a recovered or deepened awareness of what it means to fear the Lord. To take God and the things of God with the seriousness that they deserve given his greatness, his majesty, and his amazing grace and goodness. I want to tell you, and I want to believe and experience more deeply, the fear of the Lord is the soul, the essence of godliness. May God grant that we really truly come to know like the apostle knew so that he could say almost as a passing thought, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May the truth about you, may the name that you've made for yourself by the words and works recorded in scripture be held sacred by us. May we stand in awe, may we reverently contemplate, may we set these things apart as central and most serious in our lives. May we not play around in any way when it comes to Christianity. And may we see engaging with you so gracious, so great, to be of infinite importance. Inspire in us by your spirit and your word a deep, transforming, reverential awe and fear of you. In Christ's worthy name we pray, amen.